Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 88 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Ira Wallace of Southern Exposure Seed Exchange about seed swapping and exchanges. She also shares some stories about heirloom seed saving and how you can be part of it. And there's a wonderful story about collard greens and their legacy. The plant profile in this episode is on junipers and I share some upcoming local events in the what's new section. I wanna thank our latest listener supporters, Katherine Lambert and Ann Hardman. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. Happy listening. This episode of Garden DC, we're talking to Ira Wallace, co-manager at Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. Welcome, Ira. Oh, thanks, Kathy, for having me. I wish we were getting together in the flesh at a lovely seed swap somewhere up that way soon, but not this me, year. Me too, me too. So we'll probably talk about some ways we can do seed swapping uh, virtually, although seeds need to get into people's hands at some point, <laughs> and talk about how we might safely do seed swapping in person during the COVID era, and then how post-COVID we would handle seed swapping. So we'll talk all about that. But first I wanted to talk a little bit about you, Ira, and your background and how you came to Southern Exposure Seed Exchange or how that came into being. Um, were you a lifelong gardener? Were you born with chlorophyll in your veins? Well, I I was born to a grandmother who was a gardener. So I was out there pretty young. Uh, although it took her passing away the year that I went to college to make me realize it was my thing and not just me tragging along with her. So, you know, now I'm 73. So it's been a, a minute that I've been gardening. And so great to have such a garden mentor in your life and such a close relationship. Yeah, I I really wish that she had been able to be with me as I matured, but uh, I always carry her in my heart. She's still with you. She's still with you in probably every seed you save and every seed you exchange with another. Absolutely. Let's talk about Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. How did that come about? And maybe let's talk about the name too. What is a seed exchange? Well, Southern Exposure is now a regular seed company, but early on, the founder, Jeff McCormick, who, uh, was a like myself a part of the seed savers movement that was uh kind of centered at seed savers exchange uh in iowa and in the midwest and we jeff uh also has a, a degree a phd in pollination ecology so he wanted to share what he was learning on the ground was people here in the mid-Atlantic and in the Southeast. And, uh, and there weren't Southern varieties so much in the overall Seed Savers exchange catalog. So he started a little catalog with 80 varieties. Uh, and after a few years, he realized that uh, he was having some health issues, that growing a seed company wasn't what he'd sound signed up for more you know being a part of movement and uh it happened that in uh 1999 uh just before y2k uh some of us at who live here at acorn community farm uh answered an ad and helped uh jeff with work in the office and grow some seed here and he offered us the opportunity to take over the stewardship of Southern Exposure uh, Seed Exchange. And we that's how it became, uh, you know, a worker 
own co-op where we try to be egalitarian and working uh, together to bring all these seeds with you and working with farmers to produce them as we have grown beyond what we can produce on our little 72 acre farm. So that's a little bit about it. And <laughs> I was just laughing at the se little 72 acres. <laughs> so little as far as maybe seed production area, correct? Because you need right. to have spacing between different varieties or different things you're growing to make sure that those seeds are what you say they are, correct? Absolutely. If you don't have those isolation distances and people are expecting purity in your seeds, you're out of luck. So uh, you have an area and then you have, a, you know, say for squash, you need a quarter of a mile to have reasonable isolation distance. So you don't have that many uh, spots of squash. Tomatoes, not so far. But, uh, you know, one of the things we learned, speaking of Jeff and pollination ecology, is that uh, heirloom tomatoes need a little more space between them than you do with more modern varieties because uh, the style is, as they say, extruded. It's kind of like a little thing sticking out of the middle of the tomato flower, wiggling itself around in the wind saying, come and get me pollinators and cross-pollinate. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting that you found that it needs a little more distance for the heirloom. So is that um, an acre apart or how far apart are you, are you spacing heirloom tomatoes? Well, regular tomatoes before that, people thought you needed like 25 feet. Mm -hmm. And with heirlooms, you might be talking about 150 or 200 feet. Okay, so doable, doable. for a, a small operation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that, that squash distancing, that's a little crazy. Because for me in, in an urban area or, you know, for community garden plots, it's really hard to, to gather seeds from squash and, and say that they are the pure variety. Right. Well, one thing that helps is if there are a lot of different plants in between. So if you have your garden... Uh, located so that you have a lot of interesting things to pollinators between you and the neighbors, or if you happen to have neighbors who don't grow squash uh, and you have houses and such between them. So there, are, and the, and another thing about squash and all the cucurbits is they have great big flowers. So in a, uh, for a home gardener, you can hand pollinate those seeds to uh, assure the, the purity. Mm -hmm. And hand pollinating is so much fun to do for the first time, especially when you figure out the male from the female flower and then get a little, you know, brush or Q-tip or something and can apply the one to the other, then you can ensure that that's the variety you're growing. Absolutely. And then you only have to kind of cover it. And you nowadays, you know, remay and other polyester row cover, you can just take cut pieces from an old section that you're retiring and use them to make little covers and, and that'll cover them for, you know, a few days or a week and make sure that your new fruit has already started. And then we, we like to use red or orange yarn to note the plants that have been hand pollinated. That's a great tip. I, I would think, you know, any type of color twist tie and the yarns, would be a good one to, to mark off, you know, this one is done, <laughs> this one is set, and then uh, the others are open pollinated. Yeah, absolutely. And so all the varieties that you carry in Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, how many are you producing at your location in Virginia? Well, in any year we might have 30 to 50 here. Our, our goal is to reproduce each variety every two to three years. So we don't have to produce all of them, but we work with 70 different farms to produce all that seed that we send to you. Otherwise we'd be, I don't know, I, we couldn't do it. Back yeah. in the day we could, but you know, now we have, you know, 10, 15 times as many customers as we did when we first took over the stewardship. 
And that's probably what makes it a great seed exchange too, is that you are sourcing the best and testing the quality. And as you said, you're growing many of the varieties every two or three years to, to ensure that those are being propagated and carried on. Absolutely. Yeah. Because how can you really, you know, when customers ask, what do they look like and how big are the vines and, you know, how many seeds per, uh, we feel like we need to be the source of quality assurance for those varieties. And I realize for a lot of our listeners who might be outside in the Mid-Atlantic area, and even those who are in the Mid-Atlantic might not be familiar with where you are located. So can you describe Mineral Virginia? Uh, Well, Mineral Virginia is sort of halfway, if you're going east to west between uh, Richmond and Charlottesville. And a, a lot of people knew us where we were for a long time because we partnered with Thomas Jefferson's Monticello and the Heritage Harvest Festival, which COVID has shut down. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, that's too bad. I love that festival. Yeah. So, yeah, we're kind of right in the middle of the state, actually. And what about your growing zone and soils? What What is it like growing there? Are you zone eight or seven? Yeah, seven. We're seven A. Uh, we, we've been bumped up. We used to be 6B, but they bumped us up to 7A. Uh, and we, we have two kinds of soil here. One of them is, uh, more of a sandy loam, which we have maybe 25% of our land is. And then the rest of it is red clay. Yeah. Uh, but I will tell you, we can guarantee that adding uh, organic matter can turn clay from uh, a big old red mess into brown gold for your garden. And that does sound so familiar with that, you know, you either got sandy loam or you got clay. (laughs) That's so much of the mid-Atlantic. You either have one or the other or a combination. But the one Mm -hmm. thing we don't have too much around here that other areas have to contend with is a lot of rocky soil. Yeah. It's not too bad in the rock department. Yeah, that's that's one benefit. <laughs> we have one bed, well, one area where three beds are like that. And it turns out that they used to have a road there that went between our property and, and the neighbors back in the horse and buggy day uh, that they put a lot of the rocks from everywhere on <laughs> the farm. <laughs> Yeah, I could see that happening. And and as they collect rocks from the fields, that's a common thing for farmers to have done was to either like add it to a wall or an edging or a road or a paving. Um, so they're all gathered in one place. And then decades later, you're like, oh, well, that was there. <laughs> yeah. From your seed production in Mineral Virginia, you are gathering the seeds, storing them, packaging and labeling them. Can you describe some of that production process? Yeah, we, well, so many things. In the, in the summer, we're planting uh, seed production and trials. And usually we're doing smaller seed production uh, with more high selection criteria so that we'll have stock seed that we can have the bigger farms uh, grow for us. Actually, it's kind of funny. Some of them are not big because they only grow one variety. And so, you know, they might be quite a small farm, but they uh, dedicate quite a bit of what they grow to seed production. Um, So we do that. And then we have these trials, which we used to have a tomato tasting so that people could come out and see the squash and the tomatoes and the peppers in the height of summer. But uh, that has been temporarily cut down. Uh, But we still uh, collect information from it and take pictures to share, you know, in the catalog and on our website with people. And uh, so we grow that. And we uh, also try to have educational events either here at the farm or at events like uh, the Virginia Biological Farming Conference that's coming up this weekend. Uh, And uh, it'll be the 22nd through the 24th in Roanoke uh, at this lovely Hotel Roanoke uh, that's uh, associated with Virginia Tech. 
So we do those kinds of workshops and we've done more of them with organizations like the Organic Seed Alliance as online uh, events that are later available for people to uh, access as they will. And that's really good because, you know, see a lot of small scale seed growers are my age and we really need a younger generation of seed savers. And we're doing everything we can to encourage that from working with them here on the farm to, you know, online teaching and yeah. That is so true. That's very important to to bring the new generations up into it because we're going to lose so many of those seed varieties uh, if there's not somebody coming up behind us growing them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but there are some, and you know, you, you think what it is that really attracts people to varieties. And uh, I have learned that a good variety, uh, many gardeners will choose, but a good variety with a compelling story, many more people will choose to grow. So, uh, you know, collecting not just the seeds, but the stories of the time and the place where they were an important part of food and recipes that are still fabulous, uh, really attract at least vegetable gardeners. Yeah, those stories can really get you hooked on some things, and you wouldn't even have grown it if it hadn't been for the story. <laughs> I can say that for a few of the tomatoes I've grown, that it wasn't for the taste, it wasn't you know, really for the tomato itself, it's just because it had such a great name and such a great story behind it. Well, what, you know, uh, in the last, you know, five years or so, I've been pulled along in uh, the Heirloom Collard Project. Uh, there was a, a book that two cultural geographers wrote called Collard, uh, Heirloom Collards, uh, A Southern Tradition from Seed to Table. And I, I thought I knew something about collards before I read this book. But they had gathered over 90 different varieties or accessions, as they say, at the USDA Gene Bank. And wow. uh, yeah, we're talking shiny ones. Like I, I knew there was green glaze, but I didn't know that there were so many being maintained by families. Purple ones like from Alabama and Mississippi, Southern Georgia in particular, curly ones that were a little bit more like a kale but big leaves like a collard and uh, you know, and then uh, the semi heading ones that were great for making collard crowd out of so many different ones and how I uh, got a, got sort of pulled into it, not just by the book was I happened to go to the USDA Iraq in Charleston because I was down there for a garden writers uh, meeting and I walk into uh, this trial of 60 of those 90 varieties and I I just was blown away and I said we have to let people know about these and uh, I reached out to all kinds of people and friends at Seed Savers Exchange and got the crew here at Southern Exposure uh, excited about it and we got uh those 60 varieties from the USDA gene bank where um, they had been deposited and did a trial here in Mineral and at Seed Savers in Iowa and took pictures. And uh, we also increased some of the varieties that year where we had isolation spaces available. And then we've been going at it ever since. And you want to hear a funny thing, you know, uh, a lot of times more middle-class African-American people are a little bit separated from the gardening tradition. But uh, when we were trying to get uh, gardeners to regenerate uh, these varieties and offer some back to the gene bank and to the seed savers collection and, uh, and then distributed them in the community where they had originally been grown, uh, a group of uh, African-American sorority sisters took on the challenge and they uh, produced the first crop of regenerated seed 
and we sent some off to Swalwood to be the first uh, African-American uh, donations to the collection there in the seed bank and the permafrost. So you never know who can become a seed saver. You know, you just have to trust that everyone is potentially one. Mm-hmm. And it is of interest to everybody and their background and their history and their family. And that's so amazing, Ira, to hear about these 60 varieties of collards because you go to a grocery store and there's just the same old, same old, right? You wouldn't even know that there was more than that in existence. Yeah, it is true. And what we are working with the Heirloom Collard Project to introduce more chefs and uh, gardeners and farmers to these varieties. The chefs are the most open, I tell you. They're like, what is this? I got to try to make something out of it. Uh, and it's it's been pretty exciting. Yeah, I would think, especially for the edible side of things, mm-hmm. that you can get people really excited by the different tastes that are out there, the different textures um, for a lot of edible plants. And that's what's so great about having seed swaps or access to seed exchanges and seed swapping is that you get to discover these things that you never even knew existed and then share them on so other people can grow them and share them on. Oh, that's so true. You know, and uh, I remember when I went to the first one of the Washington Gardener seed swaps and, you know, people who had brought something special with them uh, shared them with me. I had already gotten a little bit interested and these uh, African diaspora uh, types of seeds. And someone who was from Jamaica gave me uh, a, a number of varieties of, uh, my name just went, and the Hibiscus sabdarifa uh, roselle. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of the common name and it wouldn't come. <laughs> and I said, well, we'll just say that and maybe they'll come up there. And I, it, it, it sort of, got me excited about trialing a bunch and finding, you know, one that would do really well here in the mid-Atlantic. And I I got the Thai red roselle and it was so people were so excited about it that they made a hedge of it on the, in one of the gardens on the mall in DC at the Smithsonian. And that was really fun when they sent me pictures of it. Yeah, that was so amazing to see that. And it's such a beautiful plant. You know, it's basically a hibiscus. Yeah. Uh, but then there's actually a tea you can make from it. And it's so delicious. Absolutely. Wonderful to hear that coming out of one of our past seed exchanges for Washington Gardener. And this year, we are planning on doing an in-person one again, but we've postponed it a month. Um, so normally it would happen on Uh, seed swap day which is the last Saturday of January but this year we postponed it to the last Saturday of February um, hoping that Omicron and COVID gives us a little bit of a break (laughs) and we can do that in person safely. Um, What we had done last year was just set up seed boxes um, and let people come through at timed intervals and pick out seeds. So we got rid of all our speaking program and, and all of our sharing, which is such a great part of our annual seed swaps that we host. And I really miss that, Ira. Like you were saying that we have that share and tell session part of our seed swaps where you get to stand up and say, I brought this bean that was grown by my grandparents and that came over from Italy, you know, and share your stories about what you bring. And also you were able to get up and, and have some uh, social time, which of course the social time was taken away from that last year with COVID, but at least we got seeds into people's hands. So we were happy to do that. Oh, that's great. So where are you going to have the swap uh, in February? So that'll be at Brookside Gardens at, in their main visitor center, the main auditorium. And so we're requiring vaccination, mask wearing, and social distancing. We'll probably pare down the speaking program and the sharing a little bit just to, you know, 
for safety reasons, but we're still going to try to include as much of that as possible. And of course, we're welcoming people to bring seeds and we'll have lots of seeds to share there as well. Um, so if you just go to seedswapday.com, you can check out the link for that and sign up for that. Um, but we can also talk about um, other seed swapping that takes place in the area. So some people will be gathering with their garden clubs um, or in person later in the springtime at gardening events in the area. But I find a lot what's happening now is on the internet via Facebook groups. Are you seeing a lot of trading happening that way, Ira? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of the big uh, seed swaps kind of have more of a an existence in cyberspace. I I haven't been as up with it. The, the Seed Savers Exchange also, you know, has... Uh, their yearbook, which has existed, you know, as a long distance thing, uh, but that you can access free on the internet uh, as a part of their website. And uh, yeah, I I should have looked up the addresses of some of these, but I bet you have a mm-hmm. few to share. Yep, I'll share that in the show note and links. Like, uh, there's the Rock Garden Society does a big mm-hmm. seed exchange amongst its members, and Dendron Society they'll have seed exchanges. Even the Water Gardens International Water Garden Society sends out some rare water lily seeds upon request uh, amongst that to the members. So membership does have its privileges, right? I was going to say that reminded me of one. What really got me to be hardcore about seed saving was I was a volunteer at the North Carolina Botanical Gardens. I hate to say this in 1975, Uh, a long time ago when I was young and I had forgotten that one of the things that got started uh, by the volunteers there was uh, an exchange of wildflower seeds, uh, which later became a benefit of membership. Like if you, you know, were a member, you could uh, get first dibs with doing this even at a distance uh, because they had a great uh, big dam put up and a lot of area uh, that had wildflowers was going to be covered with water. So the botanical gardens moved a lot of these plants and then it explored how to save seeds from them successfully uh, in a more cultivated area. And that is still going on. And they asked me to give an online speech last year and I got to get an update 50 years later almost. (laughs) Wow, full circle there. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the trading going on online or amongst plant societies, that could be either operated one or two ways, right? They either have you send all your seeds to a central location and then one person or a team of volunteers might sort those seeds and send them out to people who request them or you're being matched person to person and sending your seed to a certain person. Have you participated in those type of exchanges, Ira? I have some. Yeah. I mostly through uh, seed savers exchange and through a, a new group that I've been involved with, uh, which actually just started a little seed company. It's the Ujama uh, Seeds. Uh, and it is in actually in suburban DC, like in Maryland, mostly where they got started uh, of mostly African-American, but other uh, and Native American seed savers uh, saving traditional varieties, but they also decided uh, with COVID because there's so many areas where those people were affected negatively nutritionally for uh, mm-hmm. the problems to uh, have not only seeds for sale, but free seeds to be distributed in those neighborhoods uh, as with any proceeds from the seed sales. And uh, yeah, people could check out Ujama Seeds. They're mm-hmm. new kids on the block with old varieties uh, from uh, African American and Native American. 
and uh, also, I guess, part people of the new diasporic uh, communities that are immigrants in the last 50 years. <laughs> in the 50 years is new. What am I saying? <laughs> That's still considered vintage, right? If yeah. it's over 50. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So do you have a spelling for that, Ujama? U-J-A-M-A-A seeds. Great. Okay. We'll try to have a link to them also in the show notes so people can reach out to them. And so there's the internet way. There's of course the old fashioned mail order way where it used to have lists and lists and you would circle and send it in and get your seeds that way. And that's almost the same of course as ordering seeds mail order from a company. Um, But let's get back to our in-person seed swapping and in-person seed exchanges. And I was going to talk a little bit about how those happen in person. So several of them that I've attended are you put your seeds out on a table in front of you and then people walk up to you and they offer you a trade. Um, Can you describe maybe some of those that you've attended? Uh, Yeah, I I have uh, attended a number. The one that I, have liked the most is uh, actually way out in Kentucky, Bill Bess, who uh, does heirloom seeds. Mostly he specializes in beans, in mountain beans, all Mm -hmm. of those big, the kinds of beans that you can't just get in the store, the kind that you can grow. And even as the beans swell in the pod, and when you have a seed, an immature seed, but fully sized up you still have a tender crisp bean to go with it and that's what they used to make what they call leather bridges from it and bill best at sustainable mountain uh would uh have the first uh saturday in october uh a gathering and it was sort of for extreme bean heads Uh, and People brought other things, tomatoes and sort of bit, more beans than you could shake a stick at. And I, and it was a little bit just like you said, we each would have our little table with our stuff and go and tr- try to exchange with each other. And we'd give each other stuff just if they didn't have anything you really wanted because you mm-hmm. knew there were the people who were going to grow them and share them in their communities as well. Yeah, I find uh, seed swapping, it's usually very generous. There, there's not too much haggling. <laughs> and, you know, there might be one or two varieties that people are really going for that are rare. But in general, people are happy to share and be super generous. And the other one is at big events, sometimes there's a, a seed swap, like we used to have one at the Heritage Festival. And before that, uh, I used to volunteer at Monticello for the tomato tasting, which also uh, allowed for exchanging tomato seeds. And speaking of the one that took place at the Heritage Harvest Festival with Monticello, I remember going a few times and bringing seeds to that. And it was like uh, so great to do that right in the shadow of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello right in back of you and to spread your seeds out on a table and people will come up to you and, and, and offer you things and not just seeds. I came home one year with several canned goods a woman had made. I think um, I got peach butter, which I loved. And I think of pawpaw jam, which I was like, you could take all my seeds okay. for this pawpaw jam. <laughs> oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Well, you know, some people, they didn't save seeds, but they saved lovely food. And that mm-hmm. was really resourceful to think, well, I'll bring that and go home with some seeds this time. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a great idea. And so I encouraged people, I had gone to a few food swaps. So uh-huh. that had kind of started pre-COVID and kind of tapered off now that, you know, COVID is, is around. But people would bring different types of foods that they had preserved. It could be, you know, jerky, it could be breads that they made, um, anything like that. And doing direct seed, uh, not seed swapping, but food swapping. So that's, (laughs) that's like an interesting, almost offshoot of seed swapping is, is now the food swapping as well. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep that in mind for the next time that we feel like safe to invite people to the farm to encourage them to bring some because we have such a nice big circus tent to 
put crazy things under out here on the farm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah, just like with seed saving, you always have tons of extra seeds. Like, you know, you only need 20 for yourself mm -hmm. to grow, but you have hundreds of extra seed. I think the same thing happens when people are making preserves or elderberry syrup or something like that, or honey, that once you process a lot, you might as well process more mm -hmm. and have that for extra. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that is great. Yeah, I love, and I love going to seed swaps just also for the people. Like, I don't even need to come home with seeds. Like you, I have plenty of seeds, right, Ira? <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's it's fun to meet the people and to hear stories and also the beginners to be able to tell them, you know, this is one I had a lot of luck with. This one is prolific. I would go with this variety. So it's always a great place to exchange garden and growing tips. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and don't you like it when people bring uh, more of the fruit that is still around in the winter, like they, the squash that's still preserved mm -hmm. at that point and they have that sitting with their seeds it just makes you want to grow it yeah yeah it's always nice if you can have the example of a thing with it and that does bring us kind of to labeling and pictures like it's always great to have a seed pack label where there's a little picture of it if you have a color printer or something that you can print out on address labels or things but i also appreciate when people hand draw things or hand make their labels Oh, yeah. And some of them are, I, I, I literally have a tote that I keep of interesting art that I've gathered in these kinds of situations. And uh, sometimes I use the art or sometimes use an inspiration from it for something to work on for the catalog. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome, Ira. And I, I love to hear that you have this tote because I feel like I'm such a hoarder of seed things. <laughs> I'm glad to hear other people are saving things too because when you get a cute seed pack or something that's just so inspirational or adorable, you know, once you've used the seeds, you still want to save that pack. Uh, yes, so true. And, you know, people. some people are so uh, amazing. They make these funny little... Uh, poems almost like haikus about the seed that they're sharing <laughs> that's fun to have on there i would and then i was going to say that there's you know origami and envelope folding ways to make your own little seed envelopes people will often use those little um clear tiny ziplocs that you would use for jewelry pieces and mm -hmm. of course coin envelopes are are pretty plentiful and available to use as well what do you like to use for your seeds that you gather ira well you know because we have a seed company i like to recycle misprinted uh packets and then make a little label out of uh you know just a an avery label to put on top of it and sometimes as you say put a little drawing to go along with whatever words that we want to share yeah, I got a bunch of misprinted seed packs from one seed company one year for the seed exchange, and I've been just sticking stickers on top of them ever since. Because, yeah, sometimes one goes through a print run and it's just like slightly wonky, right? Yeah. So that's a great, re great reuse of those envelopes. Yeah, yeah. We we um, we'd like to share them for that kind of use. I'll also go through with like a black Sharpie and cross off the original just so people aren't confused <laughs> and think that that's what's in the pack. This is good. I usually, we try to get a label that's the right size so it kind of covers up mm -hmm. the information, but it can be confusing. Like, uh, yeah, I, I have had a, a label peel itself off after a few years it kind of makes you realize how long some seeds are good. Things like beans and stuff that you can, you know, keep our tomatoes for four to six years and mm -hmm. have them be perfectly good. Uh, but if you don't keep those packets in something like a mason jar or uh, a tightly fitting uh, Tupperware, uh, the sign, the labels start coming apart and the envelopes start coming apart mm -hmm. or out of the sunshine i have found some that have been brought to swaps older seed packs that have faded in the sun so they're barely legible mm -hmm. and and you know uh this putting them in a container is not just good 
for the uh you know for preserving the packet but preserving the seeds because you want to put them someplace cool dry and dark to get the longest uh lifespan of high germ uh vigorous growing uh little plantlets from the seeds so q gardens uh says that uh mason jars are the best commonly the two-piece lidded ones best commonly available uh container to put your packets in and uh, preserve them at room temperature. Or Mm -hmm. uh, you can also keep them in the fridge or the freezer when they're in those kinds of airtight containers. Yeah, I definitely use jars myself. And that's not just for, you know, the longevity of the seed, but also because certain creatures like to get in and eat seeds. So that protects them from that too. Yes, this happens when I accidentally, uh, the warehouse where I keep not my seeds, but my stuff that I carry for decorations at events, every now and again, uh, a small packet or two will get caught in between signs. And when you come back out there months later, not good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's lucky that all your seeds weren't out there. (laughs) Yeah. So we've talked about the type of seed swaps where you bring seeds and and swap directly with another person. And I was going to contrast that with the Washington Gardener Seed Exchange, which we named it Seed Exchange, just like your company is Seed Exchange, because we're not directly swapping. What we do is people turn in the seeds as they come to the check-in desk, and then our volunteers sort the seeds into different categories at tables so there'll be like a tomato table a pepper table a zinnias and annual flowers table and then um after uh that's all done and we've done some sharing and stuff then we have people pick the seeds in rounds so we'll say you get your first pick of seed uh if you're wearing blue jeans today and then everybody gets to pick their first seed pack from all that are out on the tables. And then everybody without blue jeans on that day, other pants or, or skirts or whatever they're wearing that day, get to pick the second, their their first seed pack and so on. So we'll do like three or four rounds of random picking and then let uh, it be a free for all. And we found that works pretty well because some people will come in the door with tons of seeds and some people will come in with just a few seeds, but it all evens out in the end. And that gives everybody an opportunity uh, to see what's out there available and to get their first few picks without competition, so to say, without a crowd around a table. Yeah, I I really like that. But, you know, you have to quickly scan because there's so many seeds. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we do have a little what we call preview period, like that you can go around with a notepad or something. So you have a little bit of time to go around and say, okay, here's the carrot I I want as my first pick. So I always encourage people to bring, you know, we have scrap paper there for people too, but, you know, to mentally or on your phone or a scrap sheet of paper, write down the seeds. Cause you're right, Ira, you get so excited (laughs) Mm -hmm. about the seeds and then you get called for say your second or third uh, pick and then you're like what was it that I did want and then you're running around trying to figure out what it was you wanted Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of the things I also recommend people do is to make a list before you attend any seed swap or seed exchange Um, maybe inventory what you have and then maybe make a wish list of what you want and kind of rank that so you're kind of prepared before you go in because like we said just with our seed exchange it can be so overwhelming right yeah and you know if you like seeds you can easily get carried away and have more seeds than you can plant in the next 10 years in just one seed swap so it's Mm -hmm. it's nicer to think about what you need and what you want to explore and uh you know, just like in your garden, uh, a smaller garden well tended is going to produce more than a big garden gone to wreck. And trying to plant 10 times as many seeds as you have uh, room for just doesn't end up with a pretty uh, situation. Unless, of course, you decide to give those away, too. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, that's great advice. And and we do kind of have an honor system at our seed exchange where we tell people, you know, just take what you think you're going to grow. So, you know, because you can get a little crazy. <laughs> and then we share leftover seeds that are left at the end of the day. We'll share it with local community gardens, with school gardens. I've shared with um, gardens on military bases and sent them out to uh outside the area people who have requested the seeds so that's always nice to be able to use those extras and be able to tell people even if your seeds weren't picked up all today at the seed exchange they will go to a good home that is so great because so many people are offering people not just a chance to get free food but to be able to use resources of uh you know, community garden plots and stuff to grow more food, fresh food that they can distribute uh, in their own communities as well as with their own families. Yeah, and in the last couple of years during COVID, we've worked with some food banks getting seeds and seedlings out to people as well. So that's really important. This is good. I know you would keep yourself busy in good ways during these <laughs> times. Oh yeah, and and all these seeds need to go somewhere. I'm I'm sitting on boxes of seeds here, and they need to be grown and not just sitting in storage. Um, so I was going to ask you to talk a tiny bit as we're wrapping up here about your book that you wrote for Timber Press, and to let people know about that. Okay, uh, well I I've actually written now six books for Timber Press. Oh but, wow. Uh, the first one was Vegetable Gardening in the Southeast, and uh, it's organized month by month uh, with tasks to be done. And I sort of divided it into the upper and lower south and sort of the mid-Atlantic area I thought of as kind of the prototype of the upper south, but going all the way across uh, until you get to the middle uh and that area and then the lower south was more the coastal areas and uh and areas like uh the eastern part of texas that have the same kind of acidic soils and uh variable rainfall that we have here uh in the mid-atlantic but a little bit warmer uh and lo and behold people liked it even uh, all over, and uh, that was in 2015, and people have been uh, writing to me ever since, telling me that it helps them with planning, with deciding what type of varieties to choose, uh, and just what to think about when they're uh, working in their garden each month, and, and how to not forget to harvest some things when they're ready. Uh, <laughs> So that that has been good, but then Timber Press asked me to do some uh, state-specific ones, and uh, so far I've done five: Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Georgia, uh, and Tennessee, and that's been pretty good. Uh, I I sort of got a little tired of working on books, so I've been sticking to articles the last year, but. Who knows what will happen when I get tired of COVID, when get tired isn't the right word, when we no longer have to be as restricted by COVID. And those other books from Timber, those are like the Great Grow Great, great Vegetables series. Yeah. So we have Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, and Tennessee under your um name there and we'll put that link up too in our show notes so people can grab those and i do love that original book it's such a great guide um for local growers especially because as you said about the harvest not forgetting to harvest but also to recognize when something is ripe and ready is always a good thing to learn for beginner gardeners yes i forgot that sometimes you what the way you see it in the store doesn't exactly tell you uh when mm -hmm. it's approaching it in the garden so true because you can look at that watermelon for weeks <laughs> then you're like when should i take it off the vine or, or you're just so anxious that you'll take it off early mm -hmm. yeah and with melons you you know with watermelons you only get one chance to pick it 
And that's something that really helps to have a mentor and, and somebody who's done it for uh, several years to, to be able to explain that to you. Yeah, that's one thing we try to do with, you know, our blog is give you little timely hints and you can look back a few years for the same, you know, month and, you know, get different tips according to what was at the top of our head that year. <laughs> And so that blog is sitting on the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange website? That's correct. Uh-huh. And that's southernexposure.com. So all one word, no dashes or yes. spaces or anything, just southernexposure.com. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And how else can people reach you, Ira? Well, that's a good question. You, that's the easiest way. I also have a, a Ira Wallace author blog. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And we also uh, have an Southern Exposure has an Instagram feed, which we stick stuff on. Uh, and I try to pay attention to what other people say and want to know about. This has been so great to talk to you today, Ira. I feel like I'm almost ready for spring. I am so ready to get out there and get some seeds started indoors and outdoors. I don't know about you, but this winter has been dragging. Let me tell you. And we were in stuck here without electricity for six days during the oh. first snowstorm. That was mm-hmm. interesting. We were glad we had a little generator. But you don't realize how many things run on electricity until it stops coming out of uh, Rappahannock Electric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that must have been really tough. That was That hit a big part of Virginia that was out of electricity for for that whole week. Yeah, yeah. But fortunately, that's passed. Yay. Yeah, we're past that. We're on to spring. Days are lengthening and seed swaps are happening. So definitely check out seedswapday.com and check out southernexposure.com. And any final words for our listeners, Ira? Well, don't plant too much too early, but keep planting all summer and into fall so that next winter, if you don't have a lot of greens to eat now, you will. Thank you, Ira. (laughs) Thank you, Kathy, for inviting me. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Juniper plant profile. Juniper, juniper species, are evergreen shrubs that are a great addition to any garden. They come in many shades of green from aqua blue to bright citrus yellow. There are more than 60 species of juniper And of those, 13 are native to the United States. One of the most common is the eastern red cedar, Juniperus virginiana, which is the plant from which gin is sourced, as well as the so-called cedar wood that is used in clothing drawers and wardrobes. Junipers are tough plants. In general, they are salt-tolerant, drought-tolerant, and can cope with many soil types. They prefer to grow in full sun and good drainage. Junipers should not be planted too close together so they can have good air circulation around them. They do not respond well to pruning, so plant them in a spot where they can attain their full size without interference. If you notice an occasional dead, broken, or diseased branch, cut it back to the trunk and do not leave a stub sticking out. Juniper cultivars are widely available and are bred in many sizes and shapes, from wide round forms to straight tall specimens. They can be used in combination with other evergreens and make handsome hedges. They are good plants for holding in slopes and as a ground cover. Dwarf junipers are often placed in container combinations as well as used in miniature garden railways and rock gardens. Juniper, you can grow that.
In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jentz and Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space, while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City, comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org. What's new? Our January 2022 issue of Washington Gardener Magazine is out. Our cover story is on mushroom indoor grow kits for winter fun. We have an invasive alert about the Cuban tree frog, a story about how to attract northern cardinals to your garden, an article on managing thrips in houseplants, and an overview of the recent Turning a New Leaf with Chesapeake Conservation Landscaping Council conference. In other local events, you might want to check out Longwood Gardens Winter Wonder. That goes till March 27th. It's a great way to escape the cold of winter in Longwood's Grand Conservatory. Check out longwoodgardens.org for more information on that. There's also a virtual native plant and sustainability conference being hosted by Phipps Conservatory and Botanical Gardens. And that is on Thursday, January 27th in the afternoon. You can find out more about that at phipps.conservatory.org at Brookside Gardens. But happening virtually, so anybody can participate in that, is the Greenscape Symposium on Friday, February 18th. That's a day of virtual lectures focusing on native plants for tough garden conditions and how to design a small garden space that will provide ecological benefits for pollinators and wildlife. You can find out more about that at Brookside Gardens or through the Active Montgomery website. Another local but virtual conference is the Eco Savvy Symposium on Saturday, February 19th. That is hosted through fairfaxcounty.gov parks. Um, through Green Spring Gardens, and that centers this year on restoring the urban forest one yard at a time. Another upcoming conference on that same date that you might want to pop into is the 2022 Spring Conference of the Montgomery County Master Gardeners. So the Master Gardeners are the hosts and the teachers, and this is for all interested gardeners. It's a great way to kick off springtime. You can find out more about that through the Montgomery County Master Gardeners website or go to 2022mcmgconference.eventbrite.com. And Washington Gardener Magazine is hosting a couple upcoming events. We have our seed exchange on Saturday, February 26th now, uh, postponed from the January 29th date. On January 29th, though, that is Seed Swap Day, and we will be doing a virtual symposium kind of talk live thing that you can tune into at our YouTube channel. So just look for Washington Gardener Magazine on YouTube. We'll be doing a live chat from 1 to 2 p.m. on Saturday, January 29th. And another upcoming event we're hosting that you can prep for now is our quarterly garden book club. We're going to be discussing The Well-Gardened Mind, The Restorative Power of Nature by Sue Stewart-Smith. That will be on the evening of Thursday, February 24th at 6.30 p.m. via Zoom. And that is free and open to anybody who'd like to join us. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. 
Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to WashingtonGardener.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.